You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I am Tim Starks. I am the Cybersecurity 202 author here at the Washington Post. Today, we're going to have two segments about uh, protecting your money and data in a digital world. Later, we will hear from Tom Robinson, who is the founder and chief science officer at Elliptic. But first, we're going to hear from uh, Phil Venables, who is the chief information security officer at Google Cloud. Phil, thanks for joining us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, well, let's start by talking about the fact that it's going to come at no surprise to any of our, our viewers online that that most are, more and more of our transactions are, are happening online. Uh, can you talk about the degree to which uh, our, our, our financial, our economy has become digitized? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth taking a step back and thinking more broadly. And certainly most people in all of our lives, we we our entire lives have become more digitized every single day. And then behind the scenes, whether it's government, retail, energy, telecommunications, and, and also finance, more and more of our interactions with, um, with our financial institutions, whether it's our banks, our savings accounts, our brokerages or payments, uh, are all fully digitized. I think many of us probably don't recall the last time we uh, uh, we went into a branch and we're probably writing uh, you know checks if very infrequently, if ever. So everything uh, part of our financial lives have become digitized. and I think it's been it's been uh, great for convenience and in many respects has also been great for security because you know the uh, some of the online mechanisms, despite some of the challenges on online security, are actually probably more secure than some of the old previous, uh, previous more kind of manual experiences. Let's let's dip down into that a little further if we could. Uh, I was hoping you could talk us through uh, some of the advantages and also some of the drawbacks and vulnerabilities of an increasingly digitized world, specifically as it relates to money. Yeah, so I think, again, when you think about the perspective from a customer and how you interact with your bank or make payments, you're typically doing it from a a mobile device, um, like a, a, um, a, a smartphone, or you're doing it from a, a laptop or a, 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 a home computer. And so one of the things that's really important is to make sure that those devices are protected, they're kept up to date, um, they're appropriately configured, sticking with the secure defaults that the, the manufacturers advise. And in the case of obviously cloud services and things like we provide through Gmail and other things, making sure that you're following all of the, uh, the recommendations and taking the defaults that we've spent a lot of time thinking about how to make sure that default level of security is there for your devices. And then increasingly, as you work with your financial institution, and again, most of the leading financial institutions think about this a lot, but making sure that your bank or your payments provider is offering things like multi-factor authentication. In other words, moving beyond um, simple and easy to breach passwords into stronger forms of authentication. And then also that you're paying attention and setting any alerts. So for example, one of the things I do with all of my bank accounts and credit cards and payments is make sure I get an alert when some transaction happens above a certain threshold. Um, so I can really make sure that the things going on are the things that I've authorized. And what you'll find is that most banks, most financial institutions actually provide these capabilities. And certainly if they don't, that's probably something for you to question whether you should go to an organization that is uh, that is focused on security. So as consumers, when we're checking out online, we tend to value speed over having to keep inputting our financial information over and over again. What is the relationship between speed and security? Well, it's a really interesting question because 
sometimes, you know, there's been a lot of commentary in various parts of the industry that security and convenience uh, are often the opposite and contradict each other. Our experience, and certainly our experience with a lot of the customers we support, is that when companies are thinking about usability, convenience, security, efficiency, if you do security in the right way, these things can actually be quite efficient. And so a good example of that is some of the work we've been doing um, on devices and some of the work has been particularly around Android and particularly the work around some of the things in our Safe with Google program and all of the settings for Gmail, all the stuff we do in Google Cloud is all about providing security measures that are easy to use, that blend into the background, that provide a high level of security without always getting in the way of what people want to do. And I think our experience is having a secure by default approach and having usable security that blends into the background can provide potentially even more convenience and, uh, and effectiveness as well as it being secure. So we certainly don't think those are odds. And in fact, you know, a lot of the techniques we provide um, to our customers helps them construct similar things as well. Well, I'd like to ask you about your specific role for a moment. Uh, you took this job of uh, Google Cloud Chief Information Security Officer at the end of 2020. It's not a role that existed before. Can you talk about what your job entails and then what led to the, to, to the creation of the role? What made it a necessary role at the time it became a, a reality? Yeah, so while my role didn't exist before December 2020, there was certainly lots of people and lots of teams that clearly paid attention to security in the various different platform and products within Google Cloud and, and related businesses. But what we did in the creation of my role and my team was to bring even more focus across an array of things. So we've continued to focus very clearly on product security, making sure our products are delivered in secure ways, making sure that we're delivering on our compliance objectives, which is how do we evidence the controls that we have for various different regulated industries, as well as work on privacy to make sure that our products adhere to all of the privacy laws, regulations, and in fact, people's expectations of what privacy should be. One of the new things we did though as well is we created this organization, perhaps not imaginatively named, that we call our Office of the CISO. Uh, and this is a, an organization full of former security officers from banks and telecom and energy and public sector and healthcare and various other industries that have spent a lot of time in the enterprise working on securing their enterprise and we've brought them into Google Cloud to enable them to be a bridge between what we do at Google and what enterprises can do and how do we get that those enterprises to securely modernize themselves into the cloud and so I think as the creation of our organization has done we do all of the traditional things a, a chief security officer does plus this really important means of interfacing with customers to help them in their digital transformations to get to a more secure by default state. And having that, that team of former security practitioners that have spent their lives in the uh, in the enterprise and public sector side, doing that is, is a great vehicle for us doing those things. Yeah, this digitization of the economy that we've been talking about has been enabled by the cloud. Uh, it's been an integral part of that. I was hoping you could talk to me about the the way the, the the definition of the cloud has evolved, and then how should we understand the role of the cloud in our modern lives? 
Yeah, so there's cloud provides a, an array of services. So in many respects, cloud started off as what they, you know, what you would call infrastructure as a service. It's just a, a basic means of running your technology rather than it being in your own data center. But over the past number of years, um, all cloud providers, and you know, we like to think especially us, have built an array of solutions on top of that infrastructure that is everything from data analytics, um, the ability to efficiently manage um, and train uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence applications, all the way through to a whole range of application development, secure software supply chain management capabilities, all built on a global network that's encrypted, um, has an immense geographic dispersion and a lot of capacity to deal with, you know, large numbers of uh, of potential denial of service and other attacks. So it's it's essentially a whole environment that can enable enterprises, small businesses, public sector organizations to really think how to modernize their technology and move it to a more inherently secure and resilient environment. In effect, it's driving that digital transformation. And so we spend a lot of time now with customers and with other organizations, helping them reimagine what they can do with a more modern infrastructure and a more modern application stack and a more modern set of data analytics tools that can really kind of drive their business and how they want to engage with their customers. And it's really, really enjoyable for us to take what we're building, what we've learned as part of the wider Google set of services and bring that to more people in a secure, resilient and reliable way. You've described the cloud as a digital immune system. What do you mean by that? And, and what are the limits of this, the kind of security that we can have with the cloud? Yeah, so one of the one of the great things about about cloud, and, and this is not just us, but we we like to think we uh, we do a pretty good job of this, you know, especially is every month we're pushing out hundreds of updates, um, and these could be new controls that we've decided we should implement for people's benefit. It could be controls that that customers have asked us to build for them. Um, it could be fixing uh, vulnerabilities or other issues that we've discovered as part of our own vulnerability research or as part of the various bug bounty programs where external researchers notify us of things that we could improve. Um, it could be informed by all of our threat intelligence and increasingly we've even broadened our threat, uh, threat intelligence capability through the recent acquisition of, of Mandian, which is just a a great set of people and uh, and capabilities to give us that visibility. So all of this apparatus comes together and we provide these security updates. Now, for most organizations, what they can essentially do is sit back and take these updates. And it's like a rising tide lifting all boats. So even if an organization doesn't have a sophisticated security team, or even if they do, they're able to tap into this global ecosystem of this fast feedback loop that's continuing to improve security. And we think this is a genuine differentiator in the cloud that didn't really happen before in the traditional enterprise software, hardware, on-premise environment. This cycle time of, of increasing security faster and faster is what we have to do to enable to counter the threats that are also moving faster and faster. And this apparatus of cloud really helps us get that speed advantage. Do you think it is inevitable that as more of our lives are online, that we're just always going to see more cyber attacks, more data breaches? Um, well, so I, I like to describe myself as, as 
short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of issues the world still needs to work out. There's a lot of legacy technology out there where security wasn't designed in and it and it's just been bolted on after the fact. And those things continue to get compromised. Whereas a lot of organizations are working hard to get them onto a more modern uh, technical platform where the security has been built in by design. And so I think the more uh, the more organizations do that, the better they're going to be. But there's a lot of organizations that are still in that transition state. And so we still see you know, significant numbers of attacks of various forms out there. And the attackers are getting more sophisticated all the time. And so everybody has to do work to get themselves out of that vulnerable state. But the reason I'm long-term optimistic is many large organizations, including the cloud companies and including many other types of technology companies and many enterprises and government are investing a lot more in the fundamental designs of how to make the infrastructure and our digital environment more secure by default. And so we're making it harder and harder for the attackers. So once everybody gets onto these more defendable architectures, I'm not saying there won't be attacks in the future, but we'll certainly have to, we'll be making the attackers work harder and we'll probably tilt the balance in our favor. So again, short-term pessimistic because there's a lot of work still to be done, but long-term optimistic because I think we're starting to make the right directional decisions on how to build a more defendable digital environment for the future. Let's let's talk about who those hackers are. Uh, the threats to consumer data and financial information. Who generally are the hackers, and and can you describe their most their most common method of of stealing valuable information? Yeah, so I would you know characterize it as two main groups. There are nation state hackers and organized criminal groups. Nation states have a have a, a multiple set of different objectives, whether it's from espionage or disruptive attacks to try and influence geopolitical events. Uh, but there also are nation states that are um, essentially funding large parts of themselves through ransomware attacks, through attacks on cryptocurrency exchanges, through attacks on payments networks. So there are nation states with if you like criminal motivations to uh, to steal and generate money and then the organized criminal groups of, of course are, are very focused and in many respects quite sophisticated in how they think about identity theft attacks ransomware a whole array of other things breaking into payments networks and other things that can drive you know some revenue for themselves um, i think a lot of the financial industry is very focused on this and a number of other organizations are of course we're very focused on profiling these threat actors, staying ahead of the threats, investing in controls that don't just mitigate specific attacks, but whole classes of attacks. And so again, what we do at Google, plus of course now with Mandian, very good at profiling all of these different threat groups and helping our customers na navigate through there. Uh, and again, as I mentioned before, the, the attackers are not standing still. They continue to evolve what they do in light of defensive measures. And our job and all of the other cloud providers' jobs is to keep innovating to stay ahead of those threats. Would you say that the most common target is people's financial information? Um, is that what's most valuable? Well, I think there's, there's an array of things. So when you look at ransomware, for example, there's there's most of that is targets of opportunity. So in other words, the the criminal groups or certain nation state groups will 
be scanning the internet looking for signs of vulnerability where they can exploit a weakness to implant ransomware to then encrypt data to then cause that organization to be to pay a ransom to to free their data in the event that that organization didn't have appropriately reliable backups and in that sense the ransomware actors don't really care who they're attacking they're attacking targets of opportunity um, there are some groups that specifically target so again if your objective is espionage you're going to have a different set of targets than if your objective is financial gain but financial gain again that is everything from stealing um, customer information from any organization that could reveal privacy information that could then be used as a means of you know, performing identity theft or other types of access, or it could be trying to target uh, payments and other environments to try and more directly steal money. But again, it's a, it's an array of tactics. I don't think things are just confined to financial services. It's across the board, whether it's a target of opportunity or a specific target for stealing information that could be used for other types of attacks. What is the government's role in your view uh, in, in protecting its citizens' data? Well, so I think there's there's a couple of things. One, so government, just like every other organization, should focus on securing itself um, to protect the data it has for what public services do. Um, I think also clearly in, uh, in most countries, the government also has a job in providing the appropriate advice and support for enterprises that are within uh, within that country as well as those citizens. And so I think you know, I can speak from a US perspective, although obviously there are many countries around the world that I think are doing a good job of this. But if you look from within the US, I think the, uh, the this administration has put in place a number of key roles and a number of very good people and a whole array of teams, whether it's in the Office of the National Cyber Director, the National Security Council, the National Security Agency, for example, their Cyber Collaboration Center that works with industry all the way through clearly to what DHS and CISA um, are doing to drive not just things like the Cyber Safety Review Board. There's an effort uh, that's uh, called JCDC, the Joint Cyber Development Collaborative, which is about sharing information around threats and vulnerabilities. So there's a great degree of partnership between major companies um, and government agencies to collectively promote a stronger defense. And, you know, like a lot of people like to say, cyber is a cyber is most definitely a team sport and we all work as a team together across the public and private sectors. And then increasingly as well, I think government is doing a better job of communicating to the public in general about basic cybersecurity measures that everybody can take, like moving away from passwords onto stronger forms of authentication and a whole array of other techniques. And, and I think that partnership with government and the private sector is, is going to continue to be essential. The last question I have time to ask you about is, bluntly, do you see cash becoming obsolete? Um, it depends what you mean by cash. And so, you know, I think largely today, physical cash, um, I can't remember the last time I went to an ATM machine and like took out some physical cash. But every day, my kind of life is moving, uh, moving cash, whether it's through credit cards or various digital payments to pay for things in, um, you know, in either dollars um, or some other currency. Uh, I think that's going to be there for, uh, for, for, for a long time uh, going forward. Of course, whether there's ultimately a, a central backed digital currency is, is probably a whole question for a whole different event. But, uh, but at least in the short term, I, I think uh, 
Uh, I think national currencies are going to be the dominant form of payment. Uh, and in fact, you know, one of the things that's great is, you know, seeing how much the, the central banks and the financial regulators work through the financial industry and with the technology companies to focus on how do we defend uh, the digital economy. And I think they're, uh, I think we're, uh, they're collectively doing a pretty good job at that. Giving us a suggestion for another event on the way out. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so we'll have to leave it here. Phil Benables, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, up next, we're going to hear from uh, Tom Robinson of Elliptic after this segment, so please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello and welcome. I'm Suzanne Kelly, CEO and publisher of The Cypher Brief, a national security-focused media publication. Today, we're here to talk about combating crime and particularly cybercrime and fraud. And joining me to talk about this is Paul Fabara. Paul is Chief Risk Officer with Visa. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Suzanne. It's a pleasure to be here. It's nice to have you here. You know, one can never be too careful today when it comes to their personal information, especially the way it's tied to making transactions online like so many of us do. I thought we might start off by just getting an idea of what you think fraud and cybercrime looks like from your perspective today. It's a great question. Um, we are in a, a time that I personally haven't seen where you have this convergence between traditional fraud, um, cyber, and then uh, AML uh, type uh, crime, all converging into the payments ecosystem. And so when you traditionally in the past had uh, crooks that operated, bad actors that operated in silos, now they're operating in conjunction, they're operating in a highly coordinated manner, and they're going after anything within the payments ecosystem, irrespective of where you are in that uh, service delivery chain whether you are a bank, Asian uh, bank, whether you are a merchant acquirer, whether you're a merchant payment facilitator. And so they're pretty much lurking anywhere across the payments ecosystem. And I think the pandemic has accelerated that, mainly because you had lots of customers that uh, traditionally interacted in a analog way, in other words, brick and mortar, and now they're moving to digital uh, uh, themes. Let's talk just a little bit more about that, because I think you hit on a really interesting point, which is how cybercrime has evolved over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's it's not the same world we're living in, is it? Not at all. Not at all. As I said, I think the pandemic accelerated uh, the convergence of clients and customers that normally interacted, as I said, in an analog way, now moving into uh, e-commerce. And I think that that brought a set of uh, challenges for anyone in the payments ecosystem. Also, traditionally, you had fraudsters that uh, specialized strictly on either stealing credentials or trying to get into your data packs to try to extrapolate as much data and put it in the marketplace uh, for sale. Now you have, uh, as I said, highly coordinated events where uh, mainly uh, DDoS attacks are sort of the flavor of the, uh, of the, of the day now, uh, in addition to uh, lots and lots of movement in the ransomware space. So I think the ecosystem has shifted dramatically. We're hearing so much about AI these days and how it's going to change the way we live. I'm wondering how, what role does AI play in fraud prevention? It is one of the key tools that uh, industry is using. We certainly use it all the time. And um, in many ways, when you're looking for fraud, the way I describe it is you're looking for a needle in a haystack. Because out of uh, possibly 10 transactions, uh, you might have nine that are false positives and one that possibly could be uh, a real fraud transaction. 
I think AI allows you with uh, all the power behind that, with the most current algorithms that uh, the industry is utilizing, to try to look for that needle in the haystack. So I think it's critical uh, that uh, we continue to invest in techniques and uh, technology that is related to AI. One of the most serious things we focus on at the Cypher Brief is that public-private relationship. So I'm wondering how the public and private sectors are working together in your world to defeat cybercrime. That's absolutely critical. That partnership, and it's a it's a two-way streak. Um, obviously, we draw quite a bit of uh, information from them as they do from us. And uh, in order to keep a safe payments ecosystem, I think is a responsibility of any of the actors in there. And as I said, not necessarily just the whole entire service delivery chain, but also governments, law enforcement, and other players that at the end of the day can help us uh, secure payments and to make sure that transactions between buyers and sellers continue to be safe. I'm sure that myself, as well as everyone watching today, has been the victim of some kind of fraud on a credit card over their lifetime. So I'm really curious. I would love to ask you, what is Visa doing to prevent fraud and keep their customer information secure? It's it's a tough task these days. Indeed it is. Uh, but it's probably one of the most important things uh, that we have across our network in terms of uh, what we do day to day. Just to give you an example, Suzanne, over the past five years, we have invested over $9 billion in securing our network uh, from a cybersecurity perspective. And we have spent uh, well over $400 million in AI and high advanced techniques as it relates to data management. Um, and, uh, and so it is a day-to-day -day task. In addition to that, we have about 1,100 professionals uh, that literally are monitoring our network uh, on a 24 by 7 by 365. Um, and over that, we have also what we call the Risk Operations Center, which essentially is another layer that sits on top of our network, uh, looking for unusual patterns to make sure that at the end of the day, we can connect uh, buyers and sellers, buyers and sellers, I'm sorry, in a safe manner. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Paul Fabares, Chief Risk Officer for Visa. I want to thank you for joining us today to talk a little bit about what Visa is doing uh, to help prevent cybercrime and then about, you know, broadly, I think we have a better understanding just listening to the last few minutes. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks so much, Suzanne. I really appreciate it. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. And for those of you just joining us, welcome to the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tim Starks. I'm the author of the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter. I'm now joined by Tom Robinson. He is the chief science science officer, chief scientist, and uh, founder of Elliptic. Tom, thanks for joining us. Morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. There's obviously a lot going on in the crypto world right now, and I do want to get to that news. But I think it would help if you started by talking about what Elliptic is and what your role is there. Yeah, so we're a blockchain analytics company, um, and that means that we track cryptocurrencies on the blockchain, and in particular, we track illicit use of crypto. And so we work with financial institutions that have engaged with crypto, um, and we help them to meet their anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance obligations. But we also work with law enforcement agencies and help them to um, trace proceeds of crime in crypto, and uh, bring those cyber criminals to justice. FTX, the major cryptocurrency exchange founded in 2019, uh, declared bankruptcy late last week. Uh, before we get into the hundreds of millions of dollars that have disappeared from FTX, can you just break down for our viewers what exactly has happened? And because this is a developing story, what do we know and what don't we know about what's going on? 
Um, so FTX is one of the largest crypto exchanges in the industry. Um, we don't know exactly what's taken place, but it looks like um, those operating the exchange um, committed fraud and misappropriated customer deposits. Um, one thing I want to emphasize, though, is that you know FTX is not crypto. Um, what we're seeing here is a failure of a business that was operating in the crypto industry. We're not hit seeing here a failure of crypto itself. You know, the Ethereum Bitcoin blockchains are continuing to operate exactly as intended. What we have here, it looks like, is fraud conducted by, by a specific business. Um, so I think um, as the dust settles, we'll see exactly what happened within FTX. Um, but in the meantime, it has filed for bankruptcy. Um, and as you mentioned, it, it appears that uh, amongst the chaos of the, the bankruptcy proceedings, there may have been a, a hack and a, a theft of funds from FTX. Yes, crypto, the, 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 there is the potential, despite what you said about a ripple effect, it seems. Uh, crypto broker Genesis, Genesis, Genesis Trading said yesterday that they were halting uh, withdrawals at their lending unit. They were blaming unprecedented market turmoil uh, in the wake of the FTX collapse. Are we seeing some sort of contagion effect? And where or how do you see this going? Yeah, I think we're, we're seeing um, a crypto, sorry, a credit crunch within crypto. Um, as I understand it, FTX was borrowing um, a large amount of crypto from various industry players, and its bankruptcy um, is obviously having knock-on effects. But again, this could happen um, in the traditional financial system. In fact, it has to a certain extent in the past. Um, I don't think there is anything inherent in cryptocurrency technology specifically that led to this. Where I think crypto, the crypto industry has differed a bit from traditional finance is relatively lax regulation. Um, so there have been um, significant efforts over the past few years to crack down on illicit finance in crypto, but I think there, have, there haven't been enough efforts to ensure consumer protection within this industry. I'm definitely going to ask you more about that in a moment. But the thing I wanted, wondered was, whether you see there's the there's what's happened and then there's the perception of what's happened and I'm curious if you think that this what's going on will have any lasting effect on consumer confidence in cryptocurrency. I think it absolutely will. I think this is a a big hit for the cryptocurrency industry and it'll take a, a long time to recover. Um, but personally, I still have the same confidence about the underlying technology and its potential to revolutionize finance. Um, we have been through incidents like this in the past. I think the perception with the industry is that a lot of the bad actors had been cleared out of, of the industry. Um, but uh, obviously the, the events last week show that that's not entirely the, the case. A few days ago, you were quoted in the Washington Post saying that your company, Elliptic, had tracked 663 million that had moved from FTX. Has that number changed since then? And do we have any more clarity on what happened to it? Was it stolen? If so, by whom? So it looks like there were significant outflows from FTX last week. Some of those were um, authorized transactions and related to uh, the bankruptcy proceedings and FTX simply securing its remaining assets. However, it also looks as though there were some unauthorized transactions, and that's something that FTX themselves have um, 
acknowledged. Um, they have said that they've notified law enforcement agencies about this. Um, and this, this kind of concurs with what we've seen on the blockchain. So on Friday evening, we noticed some large crypto transactions out of FTX's wallet, and they began to um, exhibit some of the characteristics of um, what we see when, when a large theft has happened, when a hack has happened. So for example, a lot of these assets were sent through decentralized exchanges in order to convert them into other assets. And that's something we very commonly see with large hacks because the hacker is trying to avoid seizure of the stolen assets. Um, and so if, for example, they've um, stolen stable coins, those stable coins can be um, frozen by their issuers. However, if they convert the, the stolen stable coins into an asset such as Ether, Ether isn't issued by any central party, and therefore it's not possible to seize or, or block those funds. So it, it looks as though that's what we're, we're seeing here with these, these funds from FTX. What role do blockchain bridges play in the ability of hackers to, to steal? And, and how can those companies better prevent this kind of thing from happening? Yeah, so a blockchain bridge is a, a service that allows you to move crypto assets from one blockchain to another. And it's part of the, the decentralized finance or DeFi um, um, ecosystem. So DeFi is a movement where um, centralized intermediaries such as cryptocurrency exchanges are being replaced by smart contracts that run on uh, a blockchain such as Ethereum. Um, so when funds are, are sent through one of these bridges from one blockchain to another, they are stored in cryptocurrency wallets. And these bridges have become extremely popular and billions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency are being held in those wallets. And so those are huge honeypots for, for hackers. And the technology behind bridges are relatively is relatively immature and bugs have been found um, within them and hackers have exploited that. Um, so over the past few years, billions of dollars have been stolen in this way. And in particular, many of these hacks have been very strongly linked to the Lazarus Group um, itself, um, believed to be part of um, North Korea's cybercriminal activities. So it looks as though nation states are exploiting these bugs in cryptocurrency services in order in, uh, simply for financial gain. Let's, uh, let's return to the subject of regulation that you brought up earlier. Companies like yours can uh, act like a buffer against some of these illicit uh, beha illicit behavior in the market. Uh, but can you talk about the need for regulation uh, from governments for this industry and, and what that, what should that look like? Yeah, so as I said, um, the way we help is to prevent uh, money laundering and sanctions evasion in cryptocurrency. Um, and I believe that has a, had a transformative effect on the industry. It's much more difficult for, for cyber criminals to cash out their illicit gains in crypto these days than it was, say, a few years ago. I think the big regulatory gap, though, has been around market conduct, um, prudential supervision, consumer protection. And that's been borne out with what we've seen with FTX. And so I think um, regulators need to address these issues um, and needs to be done on a global level. So we are starting to see progress. For example, the MECA regulations that are coming online in the European Union um, are addressing many of these concerns. But if, if they're going to be effective, there need to be similar regulations in place globally. Because what we're seeing in a lot of cases is 
um, crypto businesses using regulatory arbitrage to base themselves in a jurisdiction where there is relatively little regulation, but then offer their, their services globally. So it needs to be better well, better regulations in each jurisdiction, but there also needs to be global um, coordination as well. You mentioned uh, Europe. Are the, is there a country or region uh, that is getting this right at this time uh, on the regulatory front? And, and what are they doing? What are they doing that is right? Yes. Yeah, so as I said, the MECA regulations in the European Union go beyond um, illicit finance risks and, and do consider things such as um, consumer protection. One of the specific um, things um, that is in those regulations is, for example, preventing a, a crypto exchange from engaging in proprietary trading alongside operating an exchange. And that's something we saw with FTX, for example. Um, there's obviously a clear conflict of interest there. Um, and so, yes, I think probably the European Union is leading the way here. Another concern about cryptocurrencies is where they can possibly end up. How are countries like Russia and Iran, which are facing international sanctions, using cryptocurrencies as a way to get around some of those sanctions? And starting with starting with Russia, can you tell us what you've seen in that regard since the start of the war in Ukraine? Yeah, so we're seeing um, crypto used um, in Russia in a number of ways. So first of all, um, some militant groups in Russia-controlled areas of Ukraine are using crypto um, for fundraising. So. Um, this is actually done by Ukraine as well early on in the conflict, but they're, they're looking for crypto donations to help support their war efforts. Um, we're also seeing uh, on a relatively small scale so far, but some high level Kremlin officials starting to use cryptocurrencies or experiment in using cryptocurrencies in order to um, bypass banking restrictions. Um, so it potentially provides uh, an alternative way of moving uh, money out of Russia. What about Iran? How are they? Uh, how are they using cryptocurrencies to their advantage? Yeah, so this is this is particularly interesting. So Iran has really embraced cryptocurrency mining. They have um, instituted a licensing regime for cryptocurrency mining, and I think potentially sanctions evasion is a motiva motivator for this. So Iran has obviously huge natural resources, um, but they are prevented from monetizing those on the on the international markets because of trade embargoes. Um, so one thing they can do instead of instead of exporting and selling their, their energy resources, one thing they can do is generate electricity using them, and then use that electricity to mine cryptocurrency uh, and receive receive cryptocurrency revenues in that way. So it enables them to overcome those trade embargoes and monetize their natural resources without actually having to move those natural resources out of the country. So who on a more granular level, if I could ask, we've talked about Iran, we've talked about Russia, you mentioned North Korea, who are these hackers precisely that are focusing on stealing crypto? Are they a part of the government? Are they non-government organizations, some kind of blend? Yeah, so the Lazarus Group um, seems to be a sort of semi-independent group of hackers um, that um, are, are nevertheless extremely tightly linked to the, the North Korean state. Um, they sometimes operate from outside of the country, 
Um, but it seems to be that all of their activities are for the benefit of North Korea. Um, and so we've seen them engaged in, in ransomware, for example, the WannaCry ransomware attack from 2017. But more recently, I think they've realized that the, the lowest hanging fruit out there is hacking cryptocurrency services and, and stealing cryptocurrency. And so um, they have been involved in several hacks over the past few years, and, and they've stolen several billion dollars in crypto. That's what I was wondering, is if it was just a target of opportunity or if there was some specialized skill that North Korean hackers were bringing to this. What is it that, that makes them such a pro, pro, prolific actor in this space? I think they've simply identified it as the, the, the biggest opportunity out there and so have developed their, their skills um, to match that opportunity. I think in general, I think we've seen a bit of a, a pivot um, of cyber criminality away from things such as ransomware towards exploiting the, the crypto space. And again, I think that's just because of the amounts of, of money that are um, hanging around it in wallets out there and, and for that, there for the taking, if they can work out um, how to exploit that, they can work out, for example, the bugs in a centralized crypto exchange or a, a DeFi service. Um, as I said, a lot of these technologies are relatively immature. Um, people make mistakes in the code, and those those mistakes can be exploited in order to, to steal these funds. I know you discussed how your level of confidence in cryptocurrency is being uh, relatively stable. One of the sales pitches we've heard about cryptocurrencies uh, is that their decentralized nature uh, makes them uh, less vulnerable to theft than, than money in your bank account. Uh, is it more or less if you're comparing those two kinds of currencies? Um, so I think with FTX, um, what happened was people were entrusting their cryptocurrency to a, a central party, uh, you know, a cryptocurrency exchange, and um, that trust was misplaced. Um, and I think that the, the true promise of crypto is that you don't need to rely on those kinds of intermediaries. You can instead have full control of your own assets, hold your, your money um, in a crypto wallet that only you control, and yet you can still, in, still have access to financial services. And that's kind of the, the idea behind DeFi, decentralized finance. So um, there, for example, you might be able to replace a centralized business such as FTX, with a decentralized exchange such as Uniswap, um, which operates through smart contracts on a, on a, on a blockchain. Um, so I think that removes some of the custody risk. There is no, nobody there who can steal your money. However, you are exposed to other risks. As I said, this is still relatively immature technology and um, there is the risk that there are bugs or, or flaws in these systems which can be exploited by hackers. It's been such a prolific year for, for these kinds of hacks on cryptocurrency. What do you think it will take at the very end of the day to, to make that stop or at least slow significantly? We talked about regulation. Is there, are there other things? I think you need to make it uh, difficult for the, the criminals to be able to, to cash out. Um, I think there's been a lot of progress in, in this area over the past decade. But um, these funds are being stolen because they're able to convert the crypto back into to fiat currency at some point and therefore profit from their crimes. Um, I think you need to 
impose regulation on those gateways between crypto and the traditional financial system and make sure that proceeds of crime can't flow from onto the other. Is it, is it going to take an act of Congress on those regulation fronts, or are there things that, that we can see agencies that, that have oversight in this area, which I guess is one of the problems, uh, are there things that, 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 that these agencies can do, existing authorities, or do they need Congress, or does, is, it, is it perhaps both? Um, so in terms of consumer protection and market conduct, I think we need new legislation, we need a new regulatory framework that um, encompasses the crypto industry and takes account of the, the specific characteristics of cryptocurrency, both the benefits and, and the risks that it, that it poses. So yes, I think um, something similar to the MECA regulation in the European Union um, is probably required in the United States as well. That's something we'll definitely be watching and reporting on at the Post. Uh, Tom Robinson, we are unfortunately out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.